Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. From beautiful Hollywood, California, this is your infectious disease doc and researcher, Santosh. Hi. From falling into autumn Chicago, it's me again. (laughs) letting you know that we are continuing this week with our antibiotic history series yeah it's it's a good time to be talking about antibiotics you know flu season's coming up let's just draw that line right here santosh is that antibiotics will not help the flu so (laughs) we are coming into flu season but that is entirely unrelated Although, um, coming up on a, a journal club, we can talk about the brand new antiviral out of Japan, which is the first antiviral that's been licensed and works against flu all the way since like Tamiflu was invented in like the 60s or 70s. I'll wait for the anime. <laughs> oh my god, it's a flu! <laughs> yeah. Picturing a virus in a little robot suit fighting infections. <laughs> well, the virus wouldn't be fighting infections unless it was a phage. And didn't know it had grown up secretly a virus. <laughs> Welcome to chapter two in our History of Antibiotics series. Duh, I feel like we should have some masterpiece theater music. Part no, two. That's, that's not a masterpiece theater. <laughs> yeah. Rondo, the theme for Masterpiece Theater. Well, you know, that song gets a rondo. (laughs) So in part two of our History of Antibiotics series, Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the synthetics. We talked about the big naturals, like the penicillins, the cephalosporins. Now we're going to talk about ones that started natural, but required a lot more tweaking before they got to a form that we would recognize today. And the first of these takes us back to the sulfa drugs. Yeah, we're talking pre-penicillins. That's how far back we're going. You know, 1910s, 20s, 30s, chemistry is starting to, you know, kind of introduce itself into the biological sciences. We're just like bags of chemicals, right? Sure, and- <laughs> giant meat bags of hormones. Giant meat bags. So a lot of the microbiologists that were around were learning biology via chemistry. Yeah. So uh, German biochemist, Gerhard Johannes Paul Domak, Domak, uh, Domak yes. mm-hmm. working for Bayer. Yes, that Bayer. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Discovered that some of the coal tar dye he was studying accidentally could vanquish <laughs> deadly strains of bacteria. Like, oh crap, my attempt to see this more clearly has killed what I am studying. Hey, what do you what do you got over there? You got you got coal tar? Well, I got some bacteria here. You want to just put them together and see what happens? <laughs> like a true scientist and businessman, instead of bemoaning his fate, he leapt up and said, I've made a discovery. I'm going to turn this from a bug to a feature. <laughs> oh, I love it. So yeah. he gave it the name Prontosil rubrum, uh, rubrum for the coltar, the red, and found that when he gave this mixture of coltar dyes to mice and rabbits, it would protect them against lethal doses of several well-known bacteria, including staphylococci and streptococci. However, the really cool part about this is that it only worked in live animals. It had no effect in a test tube. So it would never have cleared today's more rigorous standards for drug testing. You know, they're just like, oh, did nothing in the test tube. Oh, well, next step, let me take what I believe is a completely inert, maybe bacterial killing compound and just inject it into whatever lab animal I have handy. <laughs> right. But first, I'm going to give that lab animal a lethal dose of Staphylococcus aureus. Just because that's how I start <laughs> their day. No, 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 no. You actually had to give the animal an infection and then see if they would have better survival with or without your drug. Domak was not terribly satisfied that, you know, having seen the failure in a test tube, he wasn't as convinced as the rest of the company that it would be as effective in people as it was in lab animals. However, it just so happens that when his own daughter became sick with a streptococcal infection, Domak basically gave her a dose of Prontosil out of desperation. This is not how you want to test new drugs. <laughs> No, no, it's not. However, there really were no existing antibiotics. If you got an infection, you just toughed it out or you died. So you can understand yeah. it, it It puts a little uh, Shyamalan twist on giving this unknown compound. This was actually genuinely a heroic thing for Dr. Domak to do because there really was no alternative. Um, you know, we do have a few cases in the modern day and age, Josh, today, where here, take this drug and you might get better or for sure you're going to die, right? We have we have a few Hail Marys like that um, still in modern medicine. So this was the era, you know, we're talking pre-Fleming, right? So penicillin hadn't even been kind of looked at by this point. Well, actually, it had been studied but wasn't capable of being mass-produced because that was around the uh, 1928, I think? Uh, ish. But we had another uh, little teeny tiny problem which would have uh, stopped that penicillin from getting over to Domak's daughter. Oh, yes. Um, so Domak's yeah. daughter, incidentally, <laughs> made a complete recovery, but he mm -hmm. omitted mentioning from his final report on the effect of the drug. Uh, he waited until 1935 when results were available from outside clinicians who had conducted approved human testing. <laughs> Interestingly, his reluctance to engage in human testing is pertinent because right. Santosh... 
he, for this discovery of Prontosil, he won the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. Uh, one of them in <laughs> physiology or medicine in 1939. Deservedly so. But was forced to decline the award. Because? Uh, his government disagreed with the awarding <laughs> country's government. Would you care to go into more detail, Santo? <laughs> I mean, what kind of scum, you know, kind of bottom feeder, horrible type of government would deny you a Nobel Prize based on intergovernmental politics? I mean, you'd have to be Hitler. It was Hitler. Ah, <laughs> now the Nobel Prize the year before in literature had been awarded to a German writer who was openly critical of Hitler, and well, he didn't take too kindly to that. So he basically snubbed the Nobel Committee, saying that no Germans would be allowed to accept awards from them, and none did for the entire duration of his rule. And later on, Domak did get his Nobel Prize many years later, minus the cash award that goes with it. Unfortunately, you know, the the award is given out kind of serially. It is not given posthumously, meaning it can't be awarded to someone, you know, even if they discover panacea, you know, it's never been given to someone who's passed away. But you can go back and give it to someone without giving them uh, the award. We're talking about giants of modern medicine right here. One of the big reasons why we here in the West still think of Fleming as the progenitor of the antibiotic era, when in fact, this honor should be shared with Gerhard Domach and a few of his colleagues that were on the wrong side of that horrible red line. But Fleming did still come first. It's true. It's true. He he published his findings a little ahead of him, but Gerhard Domach was actually working on Prontosil as an antimicrobial compound in that same time frame. So let's zoom in for a moment. And we don't normally get into pharmacokinetics or deep chemistry, and we're still not going to, but I will give you a little more info on how Prontosil worked. So the actual way that it broke down is that the compound is metabolized or broken into two different pieces inside the body, which releases from the dye portion, a smaller colorless active compound called sulfanilamide. Well, the second they realized that this is the active one, buyers pretty much stopped funding it, the research because they were hoping they could make an enormous profit. However, that molecule sulfanilamide, which would later be further synthesized into the sulfa drugs we've come to know and love, had first been synthesized in 1906 and was pretty widely used in the dye-making industry. Its patent had expired. The drug was available to anybody. So a very simple chemical process could make a home pharmacist out of anyone. And so Bayer was like, eh, I guess we'll just sell the drug effectively at cost. And it was so cheap that it was included in American soldiers' medicine kits with instructions to sprinkle a little onto any battlefield wound. Yeah, you could use it topically, which was super neat. Again, without getting too deep into the chemistry, uh, when you have a sulfur-containing compound, one of the pathways you can inhibit is the 
the ability to use a very important nutrient, folate. And so you take that folate away from the bacteria. Well, Josh, you and I, as eukaryotes, we've got a pretty cool pathway. We call it folate salvage. We can salvage some folate instead of synthesizing it. The bacteria are SOL, and they die. That's right. They don't have their own little pee patrol as a callback to episode (laughs) one. That's true. Yeah. No extra folate for you. And so interestingly, Josh, various other folate synthesis uh, inhibitory types of pathways were later exploited once uh, physicians realized that this was a good way to kill cells. Um, And so we actually do have folate targeting molecules for cancer treatment, like leukemia. So this is why I love to say, you know, it's all chemotherapy, whether you're targeting the little bacteria or whether you're targeting your own cells for cancer, it's all chemotherapy. Well put, Santosh. So with that, let's move on to our next synthetic, semi-synthetic compound, bacitracin slash neosporin. Now, oh, this is, these are some of my favorites. This, this is it. a fun one. So we could do this as an exercise in, in tandem storytelling. For those of you who are unfamiliar, bacitracin, neosporin are topical, usually creams. They're very weak antibiotics these days, but they're very prevalent and good at the few things they can treat. So let's go back to the golden age of antibiotics, the 19, late 30s through early 50s. And mm-hmm. one day in May of 1943, seven-year-old Margaret Tracy was playing ball near her home in Upper Manhattan when she was hit by an ice truck. Oh. She broke her leg so badly, the shin bone pierced right out of the skin. It would have made an amazing action film moment. John Williams soundtrack and everything. You see the gore everywhere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A local rescue worker of some sort, fireman, paramedic, police officer would just pick her up, carry her to the ambulance. The The credits would roll. Beautiful story. But that's not where it ends, which is good because who wants to see a movie ending with a seven-year-old? Yeah. Ice <laughs> just like a bloody leg and, and roll credits. <laughs> so yeah. the wounds became infected. Tracy ended up at Presbyterian Hospital where a, bacteria, where a bacteriologist named Balbina Johnson noted a few uh, competing infections. She actually saw uh, a bacillus species, bacillus subtilis. It, it can be infective all on its own if you have like a bad immune system or it finds its way into an abscess. But, you know, this was kind of an open wound. And then there was the big bad, which is the bane of all wound infections. It's staph aureus, Right. Happy living on top of your skin, but once it gets under your skin, can cause some really awful things all the way from cellulitis and going deep, deep, deep and causing osteomyelitis, infection of the bone. So what she saw was a battle royale, Josh. They were duking it out. Bacillus subtilis versus Staph aureus. On a cellular level, this is better than, you know, the Super Bowl, Royal Rumble, <laughs> and the World Series oh, combined. Yeah. It's it's one of my favorite, like, you know, kind of like free time activities to just take two cultures and just throw them in a Petri dish together and start yelling at the plate. He's not kidding. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> 
Balbina Johnson, along with the work of several other scientists, continued to research this bacillus and found it produced an antibiotic substance, which was ultimately isolated by John T. Gourley. It didn't yet have a name. It's a bacillus. It's a bacillus produced antibiotic or a bacillus produced compound. And it's actually a series of several different compounds all linked together called cyclic polypeptides. How did they pick the name for bacitracin? Oh, this is so great. So it, you have the, the bacteria bacillus, right? And then you have the patient, Margaret Tracy. Bassy Tracy. Bacitracin. <laughs> As an antibiotic in humans, bacitracin is it doesn't work well orally. It's toxic. It's poorly absorbed. Yeah. The human gut is just mm -hmm. really not set up for it. It was tried, by the way, with injection to treat things like staphylococcal endocarditis for a little while. But, you know, it would shut down kidneys and stuff. However, <laughs> it's very, very effective topically. So it's non-toxic on the skin. And the method of action in all three cases is that it kills the cell wall of a bacteria. So like the fortress moat part of the defenses. Um, because it's so effective topically, it is one of the most commonly used aftercare antibiotics on things like tattoos and circumcision. You know you've created an artificial break in the skin. We know that this works really well against Staph aureus specifically, and a few other gram-positive bacteria as well that, that can cause skin and soft tissue infections. You just take it out, it comes in an ointment nowadays, and uh, you spread it on there and it beats down your Staph aureus. While I clarified that it's toxic and difficult to use orally in humans, farm animals ingest about 130 tons a year of bacitracin. <laughs> wait, wait, how's that? I mean, not one individual animal. This is collectively yeah. farm animals. <laughs> because of the way it works and... I guess because, I don't know, cows have four stomachs, pigs can eat anything, and goats don't even get me started. <laughs> All of them seem able to deal with it in levels that would be toxic to humans. And so it's one of the cheapest and most commonly used antibiotics in the agricultural sector. Right, which we should stop doing. Like you said, it's not absorbed terribly well. Well, the, the bacteria that you're trying to kill are potentially the uh, pathogenic bacteria that get into stool, right? Uh, and then, you know, poison us because that stool there leaks to the, you know, that spinach field next door <laughs> and carries all the E. coli with it. But the other thing that it's used for, unfortunately, is it can give antibiotics to pigs and cows and whatnot. And for one reason or the other, they'll grow bigger and fatter. So let's move on to tetracycline. Four cycles? Yep, four cycles. That is why it was named. So way to bury the lead. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, sorry. no, not at all. I was just thinking of like, like a tandem, 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 yeah, tandem Yeah, bicycle bike. built for two, <laughs> two. In 1945... Respected botanist plant physiologist Benjamin Duggar, think Indiana Jones, but, you know, for plants, was sent out on the search for a competitor to streptomycin, which, if you recall, had been also discovered from a plant. Plants are our friends. This set off, you know, as we said, a whole bunch of people running around the world, scooping up handfuls of dirt and taking plants all back to their labs in hopes of finding the next huge money-making antibiotic, a process that continues to this day. So Benjamin Duger, 
plant physiologist, I would watch that show. I hope that that was on, you know, like when you have the door to his office with the glass window. <laughs> like the old, and then, yeah, you know, the old you 19, the, uh, yeah. 20s detective style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it said, you know, like a, a guy comes in with a fedora. Yo, you dugger. That's what it says on the door. And then they have like film noir banter. If you need it dug it. up, call Duggar. Plant physiologist. Yeah. Anyway. He discovered a gold-colored bacteria. The cyanamid company developed into oreomycin. Not Oreo like the cookie, but Oreo as in oral like the prefix for gold. And this was Mm -hmm. one of their first broad-spectrum antibiotics. Several years were spent by multiple companies actually collaborating, which you never see. Big Pharma was working together on this one to figure out what exactly in the oreomycin was the effective compound because they couldn't separate it out. And it took several different companies. And when they finally discovered it, the substance was found to have four rings. And that's how it got its name. A fun historical fact is tetracycline may also be one of the oldest antibiotics as it has some well-known and easily documented effects on teeth and bones. So Santosh is a pediatrician, mm-hmm. you know, going into your other yeah. specialty. Why oh, yeah. <laughs> Why would an antibiotic like tetracycline, what is the effect on teeth and bones? Yeah, so it, it binds to calcium, actually. So tetracycline, a little bit more so than its other... You know, it's little cousin doxycycline, which we tend to use much more so in pediatrics uh, for various reasons. Um, but yeah, tetracycline, especially if it starts to go bad, if it if it starts to expire, tetracycline will bind more and more to calcium. So you shouldn't take it with milk. But if you have a growing child, for instance, and their teeth are growing, um, and you have to give tetracycline for a, a long or extended period of time, it will actually integrate itself uh, wherever you have uh, calcium accumulating. So it'll actually build up in teeth and bones. Well, you're not really going to see it in bones, but you'll definitely see discoloration on the teeth. But I'm guessing you're going to tell me where perhaps you can see it. Well, in in children, it can get into, I believe, the growth plates because that's the most rapid expansion of calcium, which may make certain areas a little brighter from being thicker, but in archaeological Egyptian and Nubian sites have shown banding Mm -hmm. across all the teeth of men and women of a certain age, indicating they may have brewed antibiotic beer with this yeast. I'm a bit money that you were just waiting for the antibiotic beer. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I, you know what? So was I. I love it. I absolutely love it. So we're going to have to look into Nubian beer versus Viking beer, a comparison on brewery biotics. (laughs) We've covered in the past um, antibiotic or or antibiotic mead that was found in a – what was it? It was a Viking Viking recipe with bull's blood. A Viking recipe with bull's blood. I absolutely love it. This is a long kind of tradition. You know, you could just put some compounds and brew it up into something fermented. And some slim percentage of the time, it would work to stave off a serious bacterial infection. Yeah. So – I just wanted to make sure I got out a reference to ancient Egypt, an antibiotic beer, and a historical fact. So that's a 
That's a victory. Yay! And let's move on to another <laughs> big name, vancomycin. This is the antibiotic that I love to hate. And why is that? You know, it rescued us for a while out of the, you know, the dark ages of MRSA. It was already being developed when people realized that bacteria could fight back with antibiotic resistance, right? Um, we discovered this, you know, I'm talking about when antibiotics first came out, we discovered the phenomenon of resistance. This is evolution in real time. You know, you can see it happening. It is a big, awful molecule. You need to dose it properly. It's got horrible side effects, especially if you have to give it all over a long time. You know, the level goes up, the level goes down. You know, the therapeutic window, it won't go where you need it to go. Uh, you can't get it easily into bone. You can't get it easily into the cerebrospinal fluid to treat meningitis. You know, as much as it works to kill MRSA in a Petri dish, it is a pain in the ass. Tell us how you really it. feel. <laughs> so although it does have the stem uh, mycin, it comes actually from a bacteria, not a fungus. And in true Indiana Jones fashion, a missionary deep in the jungles of Borneo acquired a soil sample that he sent to Eli Lilly researcher, Dr. E.C. Cornfield. <laughs> oh, Dr. Cornfield. E.C. Cornfield. Not, not difficult, Cornfield. <laughs> Just take so, it easy. Good old Dr. Cornfield gets this mysterious package from a priest deep in the jungles of Borneo. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like Africa and screams sets over to here. Work <laughs> and discovers that that sound you heard was his idea and discovers yeah. Ding. <laughs> that this compound has the ability to vanquish MRSA. Therefore, he called it vanquish mycin or vancomycin. See, who says that, you know, scientists I do. Like, are bad constantly. at naming stuff? You just gotta... Yeah. <laughs> you gotta unleash the creative... Stop it. You gotta unleash the creativity, man. You know, people in the back... We just... Didn't we just go through Bassy Tracen? That was a cool name. You know? I think that it's a modern phenomenon that, you know, people have decided to kind of hold themselves back a little bit or, or they had to kind of be careful how they name stuff because of I, convention and things like this. But in the old days, vanquish mice and hell By yeah. the old days, you mean 1958? <laughs> yeah, before we had uh, <laughs> ethics. You know, I'm going to say, Santosh, it took five years to acquire enough information to make this series of clever and creative scientist named things so that's that's so true. bank <laughs> we 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 had we've we've come a long way josh <laughs> and and thank you loyal listeners for accompanying us uh, along the path um oh, so vancomycin so was nicknamed mississippi mud because early preparations were impure and brown in color and although as santosh noted it had exceptional activity against gram-positive organisms, specifically methicillin-resistant staph. Uh, it got approved after only six years after its discovery. 
So the FDA approved it in 1958. That's how badly it was needed. But there were a lot of concerns with early reports of ototoxicity, so ear toxicity, and nephro or kidney toxicity, um, along with almost simultaneous approval of methicillin. So vancomycin, even though it was approved very quickly, faded into the background because methicillin was present. Then when methicillin had a lot of resistant bacteria, vancomycin stepped up to the plate and said, let me vanquish it again. What we're talking about is the era when penicillin stopped being effective for uh, for Staph aureus. So, you know, we were scared and we were worried when penicillin stopped working, you know, the most ubiquitous antibiotic and for a long time, the only antibiotic. Um yeah, and we we were running out of options. So the methicillin era, and later its cousins, nafcillin and oxacillin, uh, which are the the synthetic penicillins, um, they kind of covered us for a bit. And then after penicillin resistant Staph aureus became the norm, then we had methicillin resistant Staph aureus. So vancomycin kind of came into view and was really important for us for a while and then faded away and then came back. So we actually have a couple of antibiotics like this that have played this part. Um, Tetracyclines, same way. They were super important to kill Staph aureus when penicillin wouldn't work. Then we had methicillin, nafcillin, oxacillin. And then when we got MRSA, now we have tetracyclines again. Uh, that we can use to kill MRSA in a few cases. Yeah, so uh, now we have something to vanquish that mycin again. Although when it came out in 1958, it was $1, $1 to $6 for an IV dose. It is considerably <laughs> more awesome. expensive now. Oh, God. What have we done? We can get into a whole different, de- uh, not, not even in a debate, just a yelling screaming cathartic episode about uh the the drug companies and how they but instead but that is i'm gonna ask you santosh Mm. what do a 1955 film about a jewel heist pine forest on the french riviera and a research lab in milan italy all have in common Uh, like a pine forest in plant uh, in france a research lab in in, uh, in milan and, and a 1955 film about a jewel heist. Uh, this is the Mark Wahlberg Italian job. This was the sequel that was I never made. I would watch that film. You know, it, it would be on right after Plant Physiologist. <laughs> Duggar, Plant Physiologist, followed immediately by Mark Wahlberg in the Italian French Riviera jewel However, heist job. Mark Wahlberg doesn't feature in this particular trio. Instead, all three of them were involved in the creation of the antibiotic rifampin. Mm-hmm. Oh, so nice. these are this is again back in the golden age of antibiotics. 1957. Yeah, yeah. A reddish soil sample from a pine forest on the French Riviera mm. was brought for analysis to Le Petit Pharmaceuticals, which oh, is a research fantastic. lab in Milan, Italy. Uh, Saying some of these antibiotics with, with an so accent. So a mm, new bacterium it. was discovered in this reddish soil sample called Nocardia mediterranei. Ooh, okay. And Nocardia, we already know as 
you know, one of the fungus-like bacteria that can cause uh, bad infection in, in a immunocompromised And by fungus-like, we mean under a microscope. It has many small tentacles or arms that look like the fungus shape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it is a, it's a fungus-like bacteria. Yeah, it's trying to bacteria. hang with the cool kids. <laughs> but, it know, but it knows what it is. Yep, but it failed. It's a bacteria, yeah. <laughs> a filthy Filthy bacteria. <laughs> Weird dominatrix for a second. <laughs> Bad bacteria. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna break who's, this. Cell who's gonna break and, this yeah. fever? Say it. Break it. <laughs> who's a bad penicillin binding? So protein? Piero you Sensi are. and Maria Timbal, head researchers discovered an antibiotic material in this nocardia. And because Sensi, Timbal, and the rest of the research team were incredibly fond of the French crime film Refifi, about, made about two okay. rival gangs competing over the same jewel heist, they named their new antibiotic compound Refifi-mycin, or Rifamycin. And two years later... The more stable version of the compounds, not of the research team, became known as Riff Ampin. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool that we're still, like, we're using biomimicry still, right? Like, we're still borrowing from nature, but just, you know, trying to switch up a, a, a carbon atom here and put a sulfur atom there and a fluorine over here and you make a new compound. Um, yeah, the rifamycins are one of the most awesome. You know, can you imagine loving a movie that. so much you would it. name a compound after it? That'd be like Infinity Warfarin. <laughs> It'd be so awesome, Marvelicin. Absolutely, I would. I would prescribe Marvelicin to all my patients. <laughs> you know what? Let's ask for a little bit of audio uh, of audience engagement. You guys on the Facebook page, or you can. Tweet at Toshifro or tweet at Dr. J Comedy. Give me your, give <laughs> us your best movie medicine combination. At Travel and Medicine, Facebook.com Travel Medicine Podcast, Squarespace. All the places. Travel so medicine. that's Come it on, for guys. this yeah, yeah. week. Now, when we go to our next part, part three, we're going to talk about how do drugs get named today? We just spent a whole bunch of time complaining that nobody's coming up with good creative names anymore. So next week, we'll be back with how your modern day antibiotics get named and produced, where all our latest, you know, soil diggers and plant physiologists are going to do with the compounds <laughs> they're bringing why. into labs today. I'm super excited about this. We will hopefully find good names and, 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 you know, good reasons for why all the crap. Uh, until then exist. guys rate and review us. It's been five years and we're still around. So we would love if you could help even more people find the show. <laughs> That was the most ringing endorsement you had. <laughs> and you know, we're just still here. Slogging away. So, <laughs> no. uh -huh. Just begging for your approval. 
like a neglected Just, why won't you child. love us? <laughs> and rate us. This show is produced stars. by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes along with all our sources from this week. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Love us! Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.